Engel. The Undecideds, or how certain drug lords influenced the new pop culture. We're in the 1980s. Hip-hop is starting to emerge. Cocaine is already everywhere. And soon, crack will be making a dramatic entrance in the ghetto. This unprecedented consumption will allow some dealers to become the kings of the streets and represents the new role models for their community. The Undecideds is going to tell you the journey that eight of these men went through, the harsh and brutal truth. These are the tales of millionaire drug dealers who have a direct impact on the phenomenal success of hip-hop. Think of Dr. Dre, Tupac, Jay-Z, Lil Wayne, and so many others. Would they have become such pop culture icons if certain paths were never crossed? Without passing judgment, without glorifying it, the Undecideds will guide you through the troubled backstage of hip-hop to its rise onto the worldly stage. So if you don't know, now you'll know. Episode 1, Michael Harris, a.k.a. Harry O. Los Angeles, 1991. The town is ruled by gangs. A young man from Compton wants to create his own rap label and blow up Dr. Dre. A drug baron in prison wants to legalize his business. Their encounter will change the face of hip-hop, and from it will arise the most notorious rap label in history, Death Row. Here's the story of Michael Harris, a.k.a. Harry O. I was not a drug dealer. I was a person who decided to sell drugs. On September 20th, 1962, Michael Harris was born in south-central Los Angeles, a neighborhood where you drive through only and where very few mothers would dream of raising up their children. South Central used to be a dynamic hub of Californian industry. Its factories and hard-working, quiet middle class had made it rich before unemployment and violence started ravaging it. Since then, this predominantly African-American neighborhood has grown poorer and poorer, leaving its youth with very few opportunities. Michael Harris was no exception. His mother, Fanny Jordan, contributed to the old ghetto tradition, raising her children as a single mother while taking on several jobs waiting tables to feed and educate Michael and his younger brother, David. Michael was a good student. After successfully graduating from Los Angeles High School, he headed off to West L.A. Community College where he studied business and marketing. Not yet aware of how useful it would get in his future career, but his mother's goodwill isn't enough. And just like many children from South Central, her sons were more attracted to the streetlights than those of knowledge. Michael and his brother started hanging out in the streets, making them their own, meeting new people, the wrong kind, of course. At the time and for years to follow, South Central streets are devastated by gang wars. The Crips wearing blue and the Bloods wearing red, the only two colors you could wear if you wanted to make a name for yourself on the streets. Ambitious and inspired by this violence, Michael Harris became Harry O, joining the Bounty Hunters, one of the most violent gangs affiliated with the Bloods. His daily life is consumed by his first crack rock deals. Even though college life was dissolving into a distant memory, his will to succeed was becoming stronger than ever. He poured all his energy and resourcefulness into developing his business. From then on, 
Harry O became a major link in the chain of what he later called the slave's economy, an underground economy fed by the lack of opportunity that society offers young African-Americans, which rose from the ashes of the real economy. For his whole life, he would have the same dilemma, take advantage of the system or grieve the situation. Knowing that very few things could change the model, given the huge pull of quick and easy rewards. During this period, Harry had other concerns. Profits were booming and crack houses were sprouting like weeds. Through hard work, Harry O's turf was spreading from South Central to Long Beach. Harry was now part of the Bloods family, and the business was his only driving force, which would lead him to bend some of the clan's rules. To get his way, he would even do business with members of their rival gang, the enemies of the rolling 60s Crips. It was clear for Harris that crack money does not stink, and in L.A., it had no color either. The crack market was thriving in such a way that it was the drug dealer's paradise for whoever wanted to get rich quickly. Crack, the poor man's drug, so devastating and toxic that the journalist Hunter S. Thompson would even go as far as saying that crack is ruining the drug culture. This cocaine derivative appeared in the U.S. in 1983. Its name supposedly comes from the sound it makes when you heat it before using it. In 1985, its consumption exploded all over America with its first and favorite victim being the ghetto. Facing this disastrous situation, newly elected President Ronald Reagan called it a real epidemic. War was declared against the dealers and the users. New federal laws were put into place by the government. Consequently, if someone got caught with five grams of crack, he would get the same sentence as someone caught with one pound of cocaine. This resulted in unprecedented wave of arrests in the African-American community, which went as high as 85% of the convicted crack possession felons. Harry O rapidly understood that he had to sustain his bread and butter, limiting the risks without jeopardizing his profits. So he adapted himself to the situation. He got out of crack and upped his game to only deal pure cocaine. The blind ambition guiding him in the beginning was replaced by a tight organization. Patiently, he built a nationwide distribution network, of course in California, but also in Arizona, Texas, Louisiana, Michigan, Indiana, Iowa, Illinois, Florida, and even New York. Harris dispatched so much cocaine that Colombian cartels, such as Cali, would start dealing with him directly. The white powder made a king of him. At only 26 years old, Michael Harris became a millionaire who shopped in Beverly Hills. Then came the rational phase that all mafia-type businesses go through. How to be legit. How to move from the dark side and launder the money in the legal economy. Planning ahead, Harry O had already anticipated this move years in advance. He had invested in a limousine business. He called it Cartier Limousine and set it up at a hip-hop hair salon in Beverly Hills in the same building as a company specializing in electricity, a nod to his latest legal job in another life. But Michael Harris was already dreaming of another world beyond this one, the world of show business, entertainment. After producing a private theatrical show starring Martin Luther King and Malcolm X's alleged daughters, his following project was much more ambitious. Using his contacts and mostly his money, 
Harris became the first African-American to finance a Broadway production by investing $385,000 in it. The show Checkmates was not only applauded by critics, but Harris also afforded the lead role to a young comedian he met in Hollywood through his limousine service, a certain Denzel Washington. Harry O'Neill had a foot in show business, and he certainly didn't want to end it there. Rumor had it that he invested $200,000 in a young Texan label called Rap-A-Lot. Jay Prince, its founder, has always denied it. But if we listen closely to Ghetto Boys, we hear. If you remember, the Ghetto Boys had a song called uh, You Gotta Be Down. And the first three verses said that from Brooklyn, New York, I'm down with Brother Radi. Trenton is the land of truth. I'm down with Radu Ski. I'm down with Jay from Houston, and I think you should know that when I'm down in L.A., I'm down with Hario. No matter what, it was only a matter of time. Michael sees his ambitions come to a halt. On a June day in 1987, he is arrested in hell for questioning for the kidnapping and attempted murder of James Lester, a member of his organization. His past had caught up to him. Lester supposedly diverted $100,000 of benefits coming from different crack houses that he was supposed to manage. During the trial, Lester declared in court that Harry O and his brother David drove him through the night in Antelope Valley, north of L.A. He described Harry O's calm demeanor as he shot two bullets at him close range, leaving him for dead in a cactus field. But not dead enough as James Lester lives to tell the tale. In June 1988, Michael Harris is sentenced to 28 years of prison. It's the end of an era, the end of his first life. As often is the case, salvation can only be granted thanks to the talents of a tough lawyer. His name was David Kenner. Harry O knew him by reputation. He had been very impressed by his orating skills and tenacity as he defended a boss, Brian Waterhead Bo Bennett in another narcotics trial in which he was also involved. Michael Harris hires him with his appeals case in mind. But not only. Once out of there, he sees himself using this lawyer to help him conquer the world of showbiz and reign over Hollywood. The only problem was that Harry O was in more trouble again. Even worse, his troubles began to pile up. In 1988, the DEA got a hold of his villa set in the hills of the San Fernando Valley. A ghetto, but for the wealthy this time around. Value $1.1 million. Later, they got his two other houses, five luxury cars, one of which was the latest Mercedes-Benz, and a Jaguar fresh out of the dealership for a total value of $3.2 million. Harris might have gotten over these material casualties, but then his younger brother David dies while crashing a $150,000 speedboat in the port of Long Beach. When Harris began his endless prison sentence, the only ray of sunshine in his penitential darkness was his marriage to Lydia Robinson, his girlfriend since 1985 and an inspiring singer. 
Not only did they get married in the Californian prison Tehachapi, but the judge in charge of the ceremony was none other than the one who had sentenced him a few months prior. From then on, what choices did Harry O have? Where could he seek the light? Why not in prison? And how about in his own cell? Was it fate that brought Harry O and another drug lord together in this 125-square-foot prison cell? His cellmate was the notorious Rick Freeway Ricky Ross, a very successful drug dealer who claimed to earn up to $3 million a day. Nevertheless, they don't end up talking about cocaine, but rather about music. Ricky Ross has a plan, an idea for Harry O, or rather for his wife Lydia, for whom he'd like to produce an album. This idea has a name, Dr. Dre. Harry O was doing an album on Lydia, his wife. So me and him sell these. I tell him, I say, look, you're doing an uh, 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 album on Lydia, you better use Dr. Dre on that album. You know him and Easy fell out. So he ain't working right now. <laughs> so Harry took that advice and started looking for Dr. Dre. Jay Prince from Rap-A-Lot confirms to Harry O that he should, without a doubt, work with Dr. Dre. A friend of mine, Michael Harris, he called me. He was in the federal penitentiary. And he asked me, he was like, man, you know, I hear you moving. This is happening. So at that time, I said to him, do you know Dr. Dre? I say, Dr. Dre is a genius. You know, connect with Dr. Dre. This is when David Kenner is back on the scene, becoming Michael Harris's lawyer and messenger as he tries to connect him to Dr. Dre's manager from his prison cell, a man called Marion Suge Knight. Many things have been said about Suge Knight. He was an ex-football player, then a bodyguard. This Hulk had been a member of the Compton's Bloods in another L.A. neighborhood. His first relationship with music was by protecting members of the N.W.A., Eazy-E, Ice Cube, M.C. Ren, Yella, and of course, Dr. Dre. If at that time, N.W.A. was making gangster rap popular by self-proclaiming themselves as the most dangerous band ever, Eazy-E and Jerry Heller, the two band managers, didn't expect Suge Knight to be more of a gangster than they were. Suge Knight not only convinced Dr. Dre to sign a contract with him, he made sure to get him out of his previous one his own way, with very little conversation and a big baseball bat. Harry O and Suge are both old bloods who have heard of each other by reputation, but will they get along? After a few telephone calls, the shady but efficient Kenner managed to set up a meeting inside the prison walls between Harris and Knight. In 1991, when Suge Knight shares his vision with Harris, he doesn't just want to manage the talented Dr. Dre, but create a label and change the fate of rap music itself. To make this possible, Knight needs money. Money the banks won't lend him. Harris seizes this opportunity to get into the music world. They agree on a 50-50 deal. Harris invests $1.5 million dollars a significant amount of it going towards a legal fund for artists, including Suge, who's involved in a number of affairs already. Godfather Entertainment was born in 1992, and Death Row Records becomes the music department. Harry O has finally made his entrance in the showbiz, but his current situation forces him to stay discreet. 
his name can never be mentioned in any legal documents. David Kenner, his lawyer, continues to defend his interest and his wife acts as his eyes and ears inside the company. The label is beginning to take shape. Hario's investment allows for the construction of a state-of-the-art, fully equipped recording studio, along with incredible means made available to the artists. Harris is ecstatic. His partnership seems to be standing strong. Suge Knight even installed a private black telephone in Death Row's office, dedicated to only receive calls from Harry O in jail, a direct line with his benefactor that each member of the label knew they should never use. Harry even got used to calling Suge at 8 a.m. to motivate him to work. Suge was used to starting the day at 2 p.m. Finally comes the time to introduce Death Row to the world. Suge Knight decides to go big. He books Chasen's, a select club and restaurant in the heart of Beverly Hills. The gangster ambiance is clearly assumed, going as far as sending invitations in the form of subpoenas. During the opening ceremony, all of Death Row members and artists were showing off as they went through the crowds of cameras and journalists. Everyone is fascinated by this new West Coast player in the production business. As David Kenner is part of the festivities, he lets it slip to a journalist that all of this would never have been possible without Dr. Dre's talent, the help of Suge Knight and Harry O's. That single interview on Party Night attracts the attention of the FBI and becomes a critical piece of evidence. But it's no time to worry, yet. Death Row's first album hits the top of the charts. The Chronic, Dr. Dre's G-Funk masterpiece is released in December 1992 and quickly reaches over 2 million copies. Dr. Dre is at the top of his career and there is no doubt as to who he owes it to. You'll notice in his acknowledgments that a so-called Harry O is mentioned. For Death Row, it's one hit after another. The classic Doggy Style by Snoop Doggy Dogg the Dog's Pound album, and many more. Music videos and magazine covers started rolling in. Harris follows this success story unfolding from prison. He even has access to a conference room with hardly any surveillance. Harris sometimes calls Dr. Dre directly to give him song ideas. He knows just what his prison friends want to listen to. Business was going well, and as we also know, his daughter Ladesia was conceived during a conjugal visit. All in all, 1994 was an almost perfect year. Unfortunately for him, things get complicated. Suge Knight, head of the cash machine that Death Row had become, is flaunting it. With a cigar stuck in his mouth, he is becoming impossible to get a hold of. The black telephone often ringing without any answer. In 1995, Knight even put up a record contract as bail for Tupac Amaru Shakur, a.k.a. Tupac, to get him out of prison. All Eyes on Me, the first double album of American rap history, was released on February 13, 1996, an instant success. Meanwhile, Harris is more and more isolated. Lydia keeps her distance as she busies herself closing multi-million dollar deals with Interscope, Death Row's future distributor. As for our trustworthy David Kenner, he spends most of his time defending Suge Knight's interests. 
When Harris asks when he will get his first share of the profits, Kenner's answer is, I don't know. This is when Harry O runs out of options. At the beginning of 1996, he decides to send a letter to Interscope and Tom Warner directly. The contents are clear. He wants compensation for his initial investment of $1.5 million, or he will take them to court. After very careful thought, consideration, and attention, I have finally decided to write you. Lydia hand-delivers the letter to the record company herself. At Interscope, they're worried. Jimmy Iovine, now head of the company, discovers who the mysterious investor of Death Row Records really is. Seeing the potential danger, he warns Tom Warner's boss, Michael Fuchs. Michael Fuchs, the Michael Jordan of management, as he likes to call himself, assesses the extent of the problem. Fuchs had been hired to head Tom Warner to clean it up and revitalize the company, so he is genuinely concerned. The $8 billion merger between Tom Warner and Turner Broadcasting is on the table. It was not exactly the best time to discover, through the press, that gangster rap is funded by a drug lord. He decides to tackle the problem at the source and goes to visit Harry O in prison. Following lengthy negotiations, Michael and his wife accept a $300,000 check. Peanuts compared to death row sales figures. In any case, 1996 meant death row's slow but sure descent into hell. After the suspicious death of the star of the label and world icon Tupac Shakur, things kept getting worse. The authorities got on Suge Knight's case. He found himself in the middle of an investigation regarding his parole violations. Soon after, the nebulous death row became the focus of the feds, along with the IRS, the FBI, and the ATF. They were all beginning to figure out that the activities of death row went way beyond the operations of your typical record company. Suge Knight's line of defense have remained crystal clear. He denied any involvement when the FBI asked him if death row was partly financed by Michael Harris. The problem is that the FBI had positive proof that contradicted Knight's declarations. David Kenner's famous interview on death row's opening night three years prior. The label started with uh, Dr. Dre, who was going to do his own thing, and uh, with a lot of help from Suge Knight and uh, Harry O and a number of people, and we got it all together. With this evidence, the government even offered a plea bargain deal to Michael Harris for his testimony against Suge Knight. Michael, however, refused it, point blank. Some rules of the street you never forget. Knight got a nine-year prison sentence. Tupac is dead. Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg have quit the label. In 2002, Death Row was nothing more than a ghost label. The dream of making it into a 1990s version of Motown had all but evaporated. Despite all of this, Harris and Lydia went to court and sued Suge Knight, claiming half of the company. The case was dismissed. In 2005, Suge and Harry O met again at the San Quentin prison. Suge was nervous. Michael was asking for $30 million to close Death Row's chapter, a figure right out of an audit requested by Harris. As they said goodbye, Suge's palms were sweating. Soon after the encounter, Suge called Lydia only to find out that she and Harry were getting a divorce. During their conversation, Suge insinuates that her husband wanted to get rid of her. 
Lydia, afraid, suggests a million-dollar deal to clear Suge Knight's debt and legally nullify Michael's demands. Nevertheless, this plan never came to fruition. In 2005, the ex-couple saw a glimpse of hope. A court finally ruled in their favor, recognizing their legitimacy and their major role in death row success. Lydia and Harry O would split $107 million. At least they were supposed to, before Suge Knight tricked them once again. It would be the last time. Always well advised, Suge filed for bankruptcy and found himself insolvent from the debt. He is not liable to pay whoever, whatsoever. Death Row sold 50 million albums, bringing in $750 million, but the Harrises barely got anything from it. In 2012, when Harry O came up for parole, James Lester, whom Harris supposedly shot 25 years prior, freely confesses to the judge that Harris did not pull the trigger on that famous night. Instead, it was the LAPD that pressured him into the deposition to trap Harris. Harris begged the judge on bended knee to believe him. To no avail, Harris's sentence stands. The show had to go on. There is no pity in Hollywood. Denzel gets an Oscar. Dr. Dre gets bigger and better and sells his Beats headphones brand to Apple for $3 billion. As for the guy who put them on the map, Michael Harry O. Harris, he is still waiting to get out of jail on October 27th. 2028. Find the playlist related to the episodes on all the streaming platforms and on theundersiders.com. The Undersiders is produced by Angle and created by Francois Cousset. Sound production by V in Paris, France. Original scores by Max Ebel. English version narrated by Ellis Park and recorded at Lotus Productions in New York City. Find more episodes of The Undersiders anywhere you find podcasts and on theundersiders.com.